We have more new episodes arriving this season, but we are taking this week along with a couple others to highlight some memorable episodes from past seasons. Season 4 sounds a lot different from Season 1. I sound different. But Season 3 marked a turning point, especially when it came to Episode 4. Charlie Jane Anders and Ogan Alley. While chatting with Charlie Jane before the recording, and then listening to her read, I kept hearing this loud, boisterous, immigrant song-esque odyssey in my head. And that's where Ogan Alley comes in. From the very start, the episode kicks off. And I've always felt like this episode was the beginning of that next sonic journey for Storybound. Charlie Jane was so much fun. You should most definitely check out her book, maybe even read along to this episode. Please enjoy this re-airing. Where is the scapegoat if there's no one left free? Welcome everyone to a new episode of Storybound. This week on the show, we're joined by Charlie Jane Anders, who'll be reading an excerpt from her forthcoming YA novel, Victories Greater Than Death which is the first of a new trilogy from the author. Charlie Jane has been a staple of the sci-fi community for years. Her fiction and journalism have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, McSweeney's Mother Jones, the Boston Review, Tor.com, Tin House, Conjunctions, and Wired, among many other places. And without further ado, we are very pleased to bring you her voice. Hello, I'm Charlie Jane Anders, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm going to be reading a little section from my upcoming young adult novel, Victories Greater Than Death, which comes out in April 2021. The only thing you really need to know at this point is that Tina, the main character, has found out that she's actually a clone of an alien warrior who was left on Earth as a baby. The clone was left on Earth as a baby. And she has a signal beacon inside her chest that will activate and let the aliens know to come get her when she's old enough. Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you'll hear Charlie Jane Anders read from her upcoming YA novel, joined by Ogan Alley for an original musical score. Find out what LeVar Burton means when he says, Charlie Jane Anders has a rich and delicious talent and a wickedly funny voice that the world needs right now. Let's start the show. Saturday morning, the sunlight invades my tiny curtained-off bedroom and wakes me from a clammy, bad dream. Even awake, I keep remembering Morant's creepy voice, and I startle, as if I had more layers of nightmare to wake from. My phone is jittering with all the gossip from Waymaker fandom and random updates about some Clinton high drama that I barely noticed in the midst of my Morant obsession. And then there's a message from my best friend, Rachel, on the Lasagna Hats Discord server. The message reads, Monday Barker, Barker. it's happening, Disco disco party, coming to pick you up at noon. Okay, so... Okay, so the Lasagna Hat started as a back channel group for Waymaker players until the game had one gross update too many, and then we just started chatting about whatever. 
And somehow this turned into a place to organize pranks and disruptions against all of the world's scuzziest creeps. I grab my backpack, dump out all my school stuff and cram it full of noisemakers, glitter, and my mom's old costume stuff. I'm already snapping out of my anxiety spiral. The backseat of Rachel's car, Rachel's car, the backseat of Rachel's car is covered with art supplies and sketch pads, and I can tell at a glance that she's leveled up since I last saw her works in progress. So anyway, as soon as I get in her car, Rachel chatters to me about Monday Barker. Monday, Monday Barker. Barker. Monday Barker. He's that online personality who says that girls are just naturally bad at science and math and women never should have gotten the vote. So anyway, like I was saying, about then Rachel trails off because she can tell I'm only half listening. OK, OK. What's wrong with you? I can barely find the words to tell her that I've started having hallucinations about an alien serial killer. Serial killer. The artwork, scattered across Rachel's back seat, includes a hand-colored drawing of a zebra wearing a ruffly collar and a velvet jacket, raising a sword, and riding a narwhal across the clouds. Somehow, this image gives me the courage to explain about Morant. I'm pretty sure these were actual memories from before, I say. I think this means it's going to light up soon. That's great. Rachel glances at my face. Wait, wait, why isn't that great? It is, I say, except I've been waiting and dreaming for so long and it's suddenly a real thing. And what if there's nothing out there anymore but just the evil murder team that are coming to kill me? What if all the friendly aliens are dead or they don't bother to show up? Huh. Rachel drives onto the highway and merges into traffic without even slowing down. I guess there's only one way to find out. I close my eyes and I remember Morant's oily voice. You were always doomed to fail. Maybe I can't do this. I suck in a deep breath through my teeth. Maybe I'm just out of my league and I'm going to die. Maybe I'm just not strong enough. Rachel glances at me again and shrugs. Maybe. Is all she says. Rachel doesn't talk for ages. I think that this is the kind of silence where she's working something out in her own head. We make a pit stop at a convenience store, and Rachel pauses in the parking lot. Remember when you decked Walter Gao for calling me an orca in a smock? It wasn't a smock. It was a nice chemise from Torrid, and Walter deserved much worse. Remember that great lunch lady wore and that Frito pie costume you wore? I nod. Rachel goes on. The entire time I've known you, people have kept telling you to stop being such an obnoxious pain in the butt. Rachel has a gleam in her eye. But here you are, preparing to put on a ridiculous costume and prank Monday Barker. Monday Barker. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. So, if some alien murderer team shows up to test you, I feel sorry for them. Rachel smiles at me. Everything suddenly feels extremely heavy and lighter than air at the same time. Oh my God, I say, can I hug you? I know you don't always like to be touched, but... Rachel nods and I pull her into a bear hug. She smells of fancy soap and acetone, and then her arms wrap around me super gently. Rachel lets go of me and I let go too, and we go to buy some extra spicy chips and ultra caffeinated sodas, the perfect fuel for confronting ass hattery. Ass millinery? 
I keep thinking of what Rachel said and a sugar rush spreads throughout my entire whole body. I feel like I almost forgot something massively important, but my best friend was there to remind me. The music you're hearing in this episode was assembled from Oganali. You can look them up under O-G-I-N-A-L-I-I, Oganali. You are listening to Storybound with Charlie Jane Anders and Oganelli. And now we return from our break. Monday Barker is scheduled to speak at the Lions Club in Islington, and we're setting up at the park across the street. Bet and Turtle have a glitter mist machine and a big disco ball, and a dozen other people mostly my age have brought sparkly decorations. I wander around helping people figure out the best place to set up since this disco party was sort of my idea. We got this, says Turtle, buttoning their white suit jacket over a red shirt. Why don't you go get yourself ready? Turtle has put pink streaks into their hair swoosh. In other words, Turtle is saying, stop trying to micromanage everyone. Message received. Message received. Message received. I retreat to Rachel's car where I rummage in my knapsack and put on a bright red spangly tuxedo shirt and a big fluffy pink skirt that I stole from my mom, plus shoes covered with sequins. Rachel sets to work finishing some signs she was making which are full of rainbows and stars and shiny dayglow paint. I pull out the tubes of glitter goop I brought with me and she lets me spread some around the edges using a popsicle stick. I coax Rachel into telling me about the comic she's working on right now. Okay. It's about a group of animals living on a boat, living on a boat, animals living on a boat. They thought they were getting on Noah's Ark, but the guy that they thought was Noah skipped out on them. Skipped out on them. Animals living on a boat. And now they're stuck on a boat in the middle of the ocean alone. Middle of the ocean alone. There's a pair of giraffes and a polytriad of walruses. They have to teach themselves to sail, and maybe they're going to become pirates who only steal fresh produce. Guy that they thought was Noah. Animals living on a boat. Living on a boat. Animals. Once I have enough of it, I might put it online. Hell yeah, I say. The world deserves to learn how excellent you are. She just nods and keeps adding more sparkle. I wish the bullies hadn't driven Rachel away from school. She just made too easy a target for ass millinery. Her parents are nudists. She's a super introvert who sometimes talks to herself when she gets too stressed out, and she wears loose rayon clothing to hide all of her curves. The rich kids, the ones whose parents worked at the tech campus, took Rachel's picture and used filters to make her look like an actual dog. Kids accidentally tripped her up as she walked into school or shoved her in the girls' room. One time, somebody dumped a can of coffee grounds from the teacher's lounge on her head. I tried to protect her, but I couldn't be there all the time. So, homeschooling, and me never getting to see Rachel during the week anymore. Soon there are about 20 of us across the street from the Lions Club, everybody feeding off everyone else's energy, hoisting Rachel's glorious signs. And a pro Monday Barker crowd is already gathered across the street on the front walk of this old one-story brick meeting hall with flaking paint on its wooden sign. A town car pulls up. Monday Barker gets out, flanked by two beefy men in dark suits holding walkie-talkies. Monday Barker is about my mom's age with sideburns that closing his round face and a huge crown of upswept hair. 
He waves in a robotic motion and his fans scream and freak out. On our side, somebody fires up a big speaker on wheels playing old disco music. The handful of cops between us and the Lions Club tense up, but we're not trying to start anything. We're just having an impromptu dance party. The brick wall of the Savings and Trust Bank seems to shiver. I catch a glimpse of Morant, the giant with the scary, perfect face and the staring, thin lips staring at me. But then I remember what my past self said to him in that vision. There are victories greater than death. I can see justice coming. And then I think about Rachel saying, It's some alien murderer team shows up to test you. I feel sorry for them. The throbbing in my chest grows stronger, but Morant is gone. The brick wall is just a brick wall again. The Monday Barker fans, mostly white boys with bad hair, are chanting something, but I can't hear them over our music. Rachel and I look at each other and whoop. Someone starts the whole crowd singing along with that song about how we are family. I know, I know, but I kind of get choked up. We keep on chanting disco lyrics and holding hands until Monday Barker's supporters vanish inside the Lions Club to listen to their idol explain why girls shouldn't learn to read. Out here on the disco side of the line, we all start high-fiving each other and jumping up and down. Afterward, we all head to the 23-hour coffee bomb. Turtle, Bet, and the others go inside the coffee place, but I pause out in the parking lot with its scenic view of the wind-beaten sign for the Little Darling Strip Club. Rachel sees me and hangs back too. I say, I started to get another one of those hallucinations. I look down at the white gravel. Right in the middle of the disco party, snow white serial killer staring me down and this time, I just faced it. I didn't get scared and I could feel the ball of stars inside me respond to that, like it was powering up. Hmm. Rachel turns away from the door and looks at me. Maybe that's the key. That's how you get the rescue beacon to switch on. You think? Yeah, makes total sense. When you confront the scary vision of your past life or whatever, then it proves you're ready. She comes closer and reaches out with one hand. Okay, let's do it. What, now? Yeah, I want to be here to see this. Rachel grins. I swallow and shiver for a moment. Then I clasp her hand and concentrate. I remember Morant and his bottomless dark eyes and the exploding spaceship and that curdled blob of helplessness inside me. And I catch sight of Morant again, striding across the road with his death cannon raised. The icy feeling grows from my core outward and I clench my free hand into a fist. And then I start to shake. I can actually see the dark tendrils gathering inside that gun barrel, pure concentrated death. My heart beats so loud I can't even think straight. I couldn't even help Rachel feel safe at Clinton High. How can I possibly be ready to face Morant? I can't, I choke out, I, I can't, I, I, I just can't. Okay, doesn't have to be today, right? But I know you got this. Just think of disco and glitter and the look in Monday Barker's eyes when he tried so damn hard not to notice us in all our finery. Rachel squeezes my hand tighter. I look down at the ridiculous skirt that I'm still wearing and I focus on the person that I am in those visions. The person who can see justice coming, even on the brink of death. 
That is who I've always wanted to be. I'm ready. I know I can do this. I growl in my throat, and I feel a sympathetic thrumming from the top of my ribcage. The parking lot and the strip club billboard melt away and I'm once again standing on top of a spaceship and my free hand is cupped around a warning that we're about to explode. The stars whirl around so fast that I get dizzy and Morant is aiming his weapon at point-blank range, but I can still feel Rachel's hand wrapped around mine. I gather myself together, step forward, and smile. what happens next because a white light floods my eyes so bright it burns. Rachel squeezes my hand tighter and says, holy bloody hell. A million stars flow out of me. I can only stand to look at them through my fingers, all of these red and blue and yellow lights whirling around with clouds of gas and comets and pulsars, way more stars than I've ever seen in the sky. All of my senses feel extra sharp. The burnt tire smell of the coffee, the whoosh of traffic going past, the jangle of classic rock from inside the cafe, the tiny rocks under my feet. Everybody inside the coffee shop is staring and yelling. I catch Turtle's eye and they look freaked out. Rachel has her phone out and is taking as many pictures as she can. As soon as the ball leaves my body, it gets bigger until I can see more of the individual stars. So many tiny hearts of light, I can't even count. The sphere expands until I'm surrounded. Stars overhead, stars underfoot. The parking lot has become a planetarium. I can't help laughing, yelling, swirling my hands through the star trails. It feels like I've been waiting forever to bathe in this stardust. The music in this episode is by Ogan Alley. Go look him up. That's O-G-I-N-A-L-I-I, Oganali. You are listening to Storybound with Charlie Jane Anders and Oganali. And now we return from our final break. I'm just standing there in the parking lot, with stars whirling around me. Bet and Turtle come back outside to stare and jump and run their fingers through my cosmic blob. Everybody is shouting questions and pointing their phones at me, and cars on the highway slow down and honk. I probably should have waited to do this indoors, or at least someplace a little more private. We better get out of here, Rachel whispers, then heads back to her car. 
I give Bet and Turtle an apologetic shrug and run after Rachel. As soon as I get in the passenger seat and Rachel puts her car in gear, we spot the crucial flaw in her plan. The whole windshield of her car is peppered with tiny lights, too bright for her to see the road. Oh, damn. Any chance you can turn down the light show? I try covering myself with a blanket from Rachel's backseat, but it does nothing to keep the star map from surrounding my body. Sorry, I don't know how long this is going to keep up or even what happens now. Rachel backs out of the gravel parking lot because we're starting to attract a crowd here, and she inches out the back exit onto the single lane side road. She keeps pausing and cursing, then gliding forward again. Rachel squints at the road through the veil of stars. They did not cover this in driver's ed. My phone rings. It's my mom. I'm baking a cake, she says before I can even speak. What? I sputter. I've been saving that box of double chocolate sponge cake mix. The one at the back of the bottom cupboard, remember? I dreaded this day so much, and then I figured, when the murderous aliens showed up, at least we could have cake. And then years went by, and I stopped thinking of it as murderous alien day and started thinking of it as cake day. Are you sure that cake mix is still okay to eat? I start to say, and then I focus on what's really important here. So you already know the beacon. You went viral, sweetie. I just got a dozen messages in five minutes, so I guess this is it. Yeah. I close my eyes, partly because the star glare hurts to look at. We're stroll driving extra slow on the one lane road, except now people have spotted us and are running alongside, taking pictures of the car wrapped in a star globe. Just please remember what I told you. Run. Don't stop running for anything. I will. I need to go. Love you. Rachel pulls off the road into a quiet spot between a tall wooden fence and a tiny community garden where we can watch the light show without anybody messing with us. It's real. It's real and you did it. And all of this beauty came out of you. I can't even believe it. Yeah. I feel like I've always had a knot inside me, made out of pure, concentrated if-only. And now... It's gone, and suddenly I have all this extra space to fill. With what? I don't know. We just sit there, watching the lights fade slowly. This one blue-green dot glows brighter than everything else, and I'm guessing that's Earth. And there are two different red blips arcing towards the blue dot from opposite directions. Spaceships? I feel another chill go right through me along with a wave of seasickness. I guess we're about to make some new friends. You should get as far away from me as you can, I say to Rachel. I don't want you to become collateral damage. She's gone silent again. I don't know what kind of silence this is. I wish those jerk rags hadn't driven you away from high school. I wish I could have done more to help. I know we've been in touch the whole time, but I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't been here today. But now I have to do this alone. Rachel looks at the dying embers of my star map, then looks me in the face. I just want to see how this turns out. Yeah, I get that, but... I start to say that it's too dangerous. And that's when the community garden bursts into flames. I catch a glimpse of someone holding a big weapon like the one Morant aimed at me in my visions. All I have time to register is really bulky, really bulky, built like a linebacker and like a linebacker, matte black armor with a red stripe going diagonally halfway down the chest and a face like a human skull grinning at us. Rachel throws her car into reverse and backs up so fast her tires turn up the dirt of this turnaround. 
A second later, we're speeding away from the alien. Oh God, oh God, oh God, it started already. My breathing sputters like I just ran a dozen sudden death sprints. I was sure those spaceships hadn't even arrived yet, but this alien must have been hiding out on Earth waiting for my beacon to go off. Rachel is talking to herself in a low voice, the same way she always used to whenever people hassled her at school. She swerves around a pickup truck, her eyes bug out a little. I need to take her mind off the skull-faced alien trying to kill us. Rachel, what's your favorite comic these days? What? She swerves around another truck. Just curious, what comics do you like? Uh, that's a really weird question in this particular moment. I don't know, Kim and Kim? Squirrel Girl or Miss Marvel, maybe? Mooncakes? Lumberjanes? Depends on the day. Something blows up behind us loud enough that my ears hurt. The very air seems to split in half. The alien is still shooting its high-tech flamethrower at us, but we're actually getting away for now. She's heading for the bypass highway. I keep Rachel talking about comics so she can keep calm for us both. Rachel explains to me about forced perspective, how the panel around each drawing can be a window, but also a frame. I don't understand why Rachel won't just drop me off and let me handle this on my own. I used to see her huddling under a table in the empty high school library with a stack of books rather than facing the bullies. As soon as a big Fortnite-looking creep with a skull face is chasing after us, she refuses to bail. Billboards whiz past us. No sign of the alien chasing us, but I know they're still coming. My phone lights up with a text from my mom. Wish I could have been there to see it. I meant it when I said I'd always be proud of you, no matter what. Then another mom text. Listen, they told me that your beacon was designed to be tracked from space. Maybe not so accurate up close. Try to find some place with a lot of walls and insulation. Someplace with no innocent people who could get hurt. I love you. Stay alive. I tell Rachel what my mom just said. She nods and smiles. Maury's? OMG, yes, Maury's. We're not far. A few minutes later... We swerve off the bypass highway and onto a cracked tarmac road that makes the Dodge's suspension wobble. A big sign reads, Maury's Paintball and Miniature Golf Thunderland. Try our hot wings. There's a padlock chain on the gate, but kids have been sneaking in here ever since the place shut down. Rachel and I slip through the hole in the fence and find the jimmied service entrance that leads inside the squat cement paintball palace. The top of the mini golf course's windmill peeks over the side of the building. My knapsack buzzes, my mom again. I can't risk the flamethrower packing monster hearing my phone, so I turn it off. And Rachel does the same with hers. I hear 
heavy footsteps. Thump, thump, thump. A ways off, but getting closer. Then I follow Rachel inside the paintball building where it's too dark to see anything. When my eyes adjust, I'm looking at a metal cutout of a woman holding a baby next to another cutout of a man in combat fatigues. Targets. Nearby, there are metal barrels, artfully ruined sections of brick wall, and ladders to an upper level. Off to one side is a maze of metal walls, and over on the other side is a fake apartment building. We find a ladder that leads to a crawl space, which Rachel is pretty sure comes out on the upper floor of the fake apartment building. We make it halfway across the dusty gloom of the crawl space, and then the whole building shakes and the late afternoon sun comes filtering in through a brand new hole in the wall behind us. The monster has arrived. We move away from the splash of light from the new hole in the wall until I can barely see Rachel's outline. The two of us shuffle forward over splinters and discarded paintball gear until we reach the back of the crawl space. We slip through the trap door that leads to the top of the fake apartment building, which has another few metal silhouettes of people. I try to keep Rachel behind me so I can shield her with my body. It's my fault she's in this mess. My leg connects with an old paintball canister and clatters across the floor. The thumping footsteps come up the staircase and a beam of light shines upward from below. Rachel freezes, shrinking into the darkness. In the beam from the creature's high-tech flashlight, I catch a glimpse of a skull that seems to float in midair. The skull's eyeballs swivel in their sockets, and then they see us. The light hits me right in the face, so I can't see a thing, but I hear the raspy grunts as the bulky figure lunges towards us. Damn, I scuttle back the way I came, but Rachel pulls at my arm. She's found another ladder that leads in a different direction. Skullface is still coming. I grope in the darkness and my hand closes around something. A discarded paintball gun. I fumble with the gun for a moment, then shoot Skullface right between the eyes. Doesn't slow them down at all. Rachel's already gotten down the ladder and I slide down after her like a firefighter. We're in the maze of corrugated metal that rattles as we move. Skullface is right behind us. We put a few turns between the aliens and ourselves and then we're in total darkness again. I trip over a pile of sandbags and barely catch myself. The heavy, grinding footsteps are right behind us and I keep catching glimpses of the light, which is now glowing green and yellow and red like some kind of hologram. The Royal Fleet shouldn't have hidden you here among these lesser humanoids. Their influence has made you weak. Skullface says, you were a formidable warrior once. Now look at you. It's not your fault. Rachel leads me through a fire door that swings open with a telltale squeak and we're behind the castle on the miniature golf course. The castle's moat is dry, so we creep under the drawbridge. The castle bursts into flames with a supersonic boom. The fire spreads to the windmill. Smoke flows over us, rank with the odor of burning wooden plastic. Another boom, this one off in the distance. 
Rachel and I crawl as far under the shelter of the drawbridge as we can, nestling amidst scum and lost golf balls. A high-pitched whistle cuts through the air. The drawbridge lifts away from Rachel and me with a splintering, rending sound, leaving us exposed to the smoky air. Standing over us, silhouetted by flames, is Skullface. Eyes scowling, exposed cheekbones making deep shadows. In the name of the compassion, I consign you to death. I raise my fist and lunge forward out of the moat and I roar, leave my friend alone. My eyes are blighted with dark smoke and I can barely breathe and I try to take in enough air to give one last shout of defiance. This grim reaper raises its giant weapon and aims right at my face. Another explosion shreds my eardrums, followed by a horrible, burnt pork chop smell. Skullface falls to his knees, then topples over sideways. Another shadow appears in the middle of the smoke, and someone leans over Rachel and me. A bright yellow hand, streaked with blue, reaches out to us. It's okay. You're safe now. I look up and see a bald head colored the same canary yellow as their hand covered with sky-blue zebra stripes. Studs, or bone spurs, come out of the top of their head and go all the way down the back of their neck. My name is Yato the Manta, and my pronoun is they. Their eyes, reflecting the glare of the firelight, have a kind expression, and they're wearing the same cranberry-colored two-piece uniform I wore in my visions of a past life. I reach up and clasp their hand, and they pull me up out of the foul moat. I'm a junior visioner with the HMSS Indomitable, and I'm here to bring you home. Their strong hand is still wrapped around mine and they smile at me like we're already friends. Joy and relief flood through me, almost too much for one body to contain. I'm warning, I'm warning to break it. 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 Thank you to Charlie Jane Anders for reading from your YA novel, Victories Greater Than Death, due out April 2021. Go pre-order yourself a copy, and if you want to hear Charlie Jane speak more, her TED Talk, Go Ahead, Dream About the Future, got 700,000 views in its first week. Her other books include The City in the Middle of the Night and All the Birds in the Sky. With Annalie Newitz, Charlie Jane co-hosts the podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. So go look that up. And thank you to Ogan Alley. Again, that is O-G-I-N-A-L-I-I, Ogan Alley. They're what you call a Nashville-based, crunchy psych, post-tampon, old-wave newsies, late-hits rock group. Their album, Pendulum, is a hell of a ride. So go find Ogan Alley on Spotify one last time. That's O-G-I-N-A-L-I-I, Ogan Alley. Thank you to Shada Fennel from Tor, Jeff Kilgore from The Syndicate, Devil in the Woods. A big thank you to our beloved Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Couldn't get through the season without you, buddy. And thank you to Jordan Aaron for production help. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub and Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate. So what's next? Have you ever heard of Paul Asicki? Well, you're going to love him, and he'll be accompanied by an original music composition by Jordan Warmack. Jordan Warmack appeared in our first season, episode two with Lydia Yuknovich. Give it a listen if you haven't before. 
Find us on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. Don't forget to subscribe. New episodes are released every Tuesday. See you next week. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.